Take your Bibles, guidelines for, uh, to grow spiritually. Uh, Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse number 1. One of the great things that um, I often think about in my start of minutes, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1, 2 Corinthians, um, is I, I go back to the first church that I pastored, and I remember that passion. I remember that we had very little. That church had zero air conditioning. It was in a swamp. Uh, when it rained like this, you'd walk, uh, the, the, the ground outside was mushy, and by the time you got into the building, you just mushed and tracked kind of mud and water into the, into the building. You had restrooms that were right there uh, in the back, a little one deals, you got to go back and, uh, and, uh, and be engaged in that. They had no altars, and uh, we took two-by-twelves and cemented to the floor, and then I built altars there uh, so that we— uh, we had altars in the church. I believe that since the very beginning of time. And Wednesday night, you've heard me say it a dozen times, it didn't matter to me how many people were there. I knew that we preached Sunday morning, we preached Sunday night, we preached Wednesday night, and God honored that faithfulness and people began to grow. Uh, I remember, I've said this before, we didn't have enough money to paint the inside of the building, which had not been painted in about 20 years there. But we couldn't afford the amount of paint that it would take to paint it and just went down to, um, to Sherwin-Williams and said, if you don't mind all the old paint, latex paint that you have. I was smart enough, no, not to mix latex paint with oil-based paint and said, uh, I went down to the hardware store and bought a 25-gallon garbage can. And I said, now we're going to pour all that paint, pink, yellow, red, blue, uh, didn't matter, pour it all in that can and then let's... Let's mix it up and see kind of what color it's going to lean to. And, uh, and then uh, we said, we got to help it a little bit. So we put some uh, paint dye in there to kind of, kind of make it look like a color that would, at least you wouldn't be ashamed to have on the wall. And that was all free paint. And that's how we painted the inside of the church. And I got to tell you, the one thing that I have pride about is no matter who you are, you will never be able to match that paint anywhere in the world because it's so many different colors. But you know what? It was the beauty I remember that when we did it and we painted it. We had no nursery. They just had a back wall. When you walked in the lobby, you took three more steps and you're in the sanctuary, uh, two doors there. And, uh, and we had no nursery. And we just knocked a hole in the wall on the right side back there and uh, put uh, a glass in there so that we could have a nursery and, and people. We expected I mean, I don't mind telling you the first seven or eight people, uh, five of those were, were over 75 years of age, and we weren't just not run over with a bunch of babies. Um, but eventually, babies did come, and we had a nursery, and I thought it was really great. We're seeing progress. My, my deal is, God, no matter how much, uh, how blessed I am, people ask me now, uh, where do you turn on the lights in the hallway out there? I don't have the foggiest idea. They only give me here one key. That's all I have. Just one. I don't carry a parcel of keys, uh, but I get one key. That's what I get. Some of the other stuff, I don't, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I've always prayed, God, never let me lose the passion. Let me, may I never lose the desire. May I never, ever get to the place that I couldn't easily go back and say, Get me a 25-gallon garbage can. 
let me go find some paint. And where there is a will, there is a, there is a way. I've witnessed people over the years who enjoy phenomenal success. And um, when you enjoy phenomenal success, some people are jealous of you. Uh, some people would discount that and say, well, you didn't earn it or whatever the case. Uh, but the bottom line is, if you know that you are true to God and true to your call, you will need to work because the more successful you become, the more that you have, the more liberty and the more assets that you have, the harder you're going to have to work at remaining the humble person you were when you had nothing. Everybody with me? When you had nothing. Paul writes, because life is one learning experience after another, at least it's supposed to be. And when one stage is completed in life, I've lived long enough now at over 50 years of age. It's something that you have no control over. If you're breathing, you're going to grow older. You may not grow smarter. You may not grow wiser, but you're going to grow older. Why? Because nature is going to take its normal course and you get to go along with the ride. However, we do have the opportunity to direct that course through the will of our decisions. That is to say, I get to choose. God gave me that precious gift to be able to choose and say, I will be close to God. I will be the passionate person that I was when I had nothing. I will be the individual that seeks God. I will be the individual that drives hard to be able to succeed and fulfill the call and the will of God in my life. You get to determine that. And by the will of your decisions, because of your decisions, you either become a victim or you become a victor. You become a victim by saying, I made decisions that took me away from the call, took me away from my passion, took me away from my commitment, took me away from that uh, commitment that I made to Jesus Christ. I made those decisions. Well, what drove those decisions? Oftentimes, if it takes you away from God, most of the time it's not pain, it's blessing. Think about it. It's not pain, it's blessing. As we understand that blessing, the Apostle Paul gives us some information I think is important. And there's a vast difference between the destinies of making the right choices and honoring God in your life. So I have a word of admonition or two, and, and I want to lean into that. And before I do, I want to refresh, refresh your heart the value of why God loves you. And the, uh, of course, why should God love you? So simply take a look. It's written by Dick Dickerson, and he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, because God loves me, he is slow to lose patience with me. And because love, God loves me, he takes the circumstances of my life and uses them in a constructive way for my growth. Because God loves me, he does not treat me as an object to be possessed and manipulated. Because God loves me, he has no need to impress me with how great and powerful he is, because he is God. Nor does he belittle me as his child in order to show me how important he is. Because God loves me, he is for me. He wants to see me mature and develop in his love. And because God loves me, he does not send down his wrath on every little mistake I make, of which there are many. Because God loves me, 
He does not keep score of all my sins and then beat me over the head with them whenever he gets a chance. Because God loves me, he is deeply grieved when I do not walk in the ways that please him. Because he sees this as evidence that I don't trust him and love him as I should. Because God loves me, he rejoices when I experience his power and strength and stand upon, under, up under pressure of life for his name's sake. Because God loves me, he works patiently with me, even when I feel like giving up and can't see why he doesn't give up on me too. Because God loves me, he keeps trusting me. And when at times I don't even trust myself. Because God loves me, he never says there is no hope for me. Rather, he patiently works with me, loves me, and disciplines me in such a way that it is hard for me to understand the depth of his concern for me. Finally, because God loves me, he never forsakes me, even though many of my friends might. Somebody say amen. amen. That's the breadth and the depth of the love of Almighty God. Paul says, knowing that, in his writings, out of 2 Corinthians 12, 6, he says, don't get, don't get too confident. Don't get too confident. This is what he says. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. What did he just say? I keep myself in check. William Feather wrote, quote, there isn't much thrill in success unless one has first been close to failure. You see, once you've understood what it means to have nothing, and you get something, you appreciate something because you know what nothing really is. Everybody understand that? But in this, in this regard, here is often the challenge. With nothing, the only thing you have is I've got to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ. But with something, and with position, and with power, and influence, and astronomical assets, it's hard to leave the primary source of the beginning behind once you feel comfortable with what you have. Paul was probably the most diverse and dynamic apostle that ever lived. Intellectual genius, we would agree. Unparalleled in this day, we would agree. Vision of paradise, we would agree. A man of the law who understood scriptural principles, we would agree. A man of vast practical experience. Alexander White wrote, to my mind, no man that I know sacred or profane is worthy for one moment to stand in the same intellectual and spiritual rank with Paul. So Paul is speaking through the Word of God to us tonight of his own experience. So this man that we now respect, this man that we've read about, this man that certainly has written the majority there of the New Testament, here's what he says, I must go on boasting in 2 Corinthians 12, although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Extreme success, extreme ability. Paul realizes that his own weakness and realizes that he is a sitting duck because of the abundance of God's favor and blessing in his life, which he chose to so discipline his decisions that it was easy for God to pour into his life. 
But he said, the more I'm obedient, the more favor that I receive, the more of a duck that I am, a sitting duck for the ploy of Satan. For the ploy of Satan, I am a sitting duck. I know that the enemy would love to stop me, interrupt me, create havoc for me, and it would start not outside. But here's the greatest enemy where the enemy works most is here and here. Not outside, but often inside, often in the mind, often in the heart. He says, guard your mind, guard your heart, because we have found that the greater the potential for success, the greater Satan's desire to set us up for failure. We understand that success, if you're not careful, is more difficult to manage than failure. It builds pride beyond necessity. Look what I've done. I try to be careful of the word I. I like the word us. I don't like the word hire. I like the word bring on to the team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? It creates circumstances for self-serving. It uh, causes us to lose touch with reality like we deserve something. May I suggest to you, we deserve nothing that this life has to offer. And the only thing that we have that we can sing praise about came at a result of obedience to God and God's favor in our lives. But here's what I know. If God were to keep a record, hey, favor or obedience and disobedience, here's what I'm afraid of, that far too many of us would have more marks on the disobedient side than we have on the obedient side. And God said, hey, if you don't get favor, if you don't have enough obedient sides over here, you know what we just read? God loves me even though I know I make errors and God desires to love me and trust me. Somebody say amen. And so here we are in this boat, this old ship of Zion. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool. You see, God created the success for his pleasure. Paul says, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. I thought about that and this message, it means I can glory. He said, I could glory if I wanted to. He said, I could, um, I could do uh, self-desires of look what I've done. Uh, but he said, I choose not to do that. But he said, here's what I will do. I will glory in my infirmities. As we spoke about this morning in the Philippians, he said, I know these chains. I know these guards. This situation I'm in is for my deliverance. That's for my deliverance. He said, I understand that this is not something God is desiring to do to me as being chained. I have prayed for years. How do I get the message into Caesar? And this is how it happens. And he said, I will not be fooled by taking up cause against God because I'm in prison, because I know that he has everything in control. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 73, 6, or Psalm 73, 6, therefore pride is their necklace and they clothe themselves with violence. <laughs> I was thinking about this message and the big events that are happening in Syria right now. And I, uh, I started as I was thinking about it and, and formulating it, and I thought about Mr. Assad. I don't, I don't know, I'm a little timid at even saying Mr. I just really want to say Assad who is, by all counts and all records, a dictator. If you were to pull him up, 
and you were to do just a little characteristic study, you would find maybe what I found. His father, of course, was the ruler of Syria for some 29 years. He had a brother that was older than he was, and he was the designated person to assume his father's position on the throne. Assad, of course, was an individual that had the ability to have academic achievement, and so he decided to go as he made his way and coursed his way through the intellectual structures of universities, particularly there in Damascus. He finally graduated, of course, and went to school there in London and became uh, an ophthalmologist. And of course, was a very good ophthalmologist and used that. The unfortunate circumstance, he did not want to get into the political process. He did not want to live the life early on that his father had. He saw his father as a firm dictator that laid down a law that this, you can do nothing, you have no rights as a citizen, you have no right to be able to do anything, to get on any news media, etc., except you answer to the government of which he was the head of. So he oppressed people, and he beat them down, and they had to do it his way, or it wasn't the highway, it was the death chamber. That was his father. His brother, just older than he was, of course, was to be the assigned leader. The challenge, though, happened when his brother was killed in an automobile accident, and now we find that Assad's father dies of a massive heart attack. Who is the go-to person? It is Assad. Assad, who's the ophthalmologist. Assad, who went to the university in London, University of Damascus, and got his degrees, who wanted nothing to do with the political structure. But oh, something has to change. Because the age in order to be now the leader of Syria had to be lowered. He was only 34, but I think the high age was about 40. So we would call it the Congress or those in charge lowered the age so that guess what? Assad at 34 years of age, now we say you lower the age and now he's the age, whatever age he is, that's what we put it at. So he can now be the leader of Syria. And that's what they did. It is amazing. He went in with some form of not totally understanding government, not totally understanding the political process. But it didn't take long for him to put on the coat of authority. It didn't take long for him to feel what it meant that at his order somebody could die. It didn't take long that all the accolades that he'd 